everyone knows, I don't, I don't have a hat on. You know, I had, to, I had to make a decision. Was I going to wear a hat while I preach or not? And I decided I'd step my game up a little bit and not wear a hat. Okay. So you'll see a hat tonight for sure. Um, they've been refreshed and ready to go, but I decided not to. My first Sunday, you know, I didn't want to scare everybody off. Next Sunday I will, but not this Sunday. Um, everyone knows that this is my favorite time of year. It is, for me, the most wonderful time of the year. And I want to give you a couple of tips um, as you prepare your hearts and your minds for Christmas. Um, work with me, okay? Work with me. I know some of you, um, you know what I mean, you're just recovering from your all your Black Friday adventures and all that stuff, and that kind of wears you down. And um, after several dinners and the rest... Um, but we're jumping right in um, to this Advent season. I believe there's a couple of things you can do, and I'm going to run through them real quick. Number one, let this be a time, start off with gratitude. You know, we start this season off with Thanksgiving. Thanks, the end of Thanksgiving is the beginning of the Advent season. And we should have a, a great heart of gratitude, not only for the blessings that we've received, but also for the fact that God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, sent his one and only begotten son, born of a virgin, in a manger, so that we could experience grace and truth and have access to salvation. We need to constantly, through the whole season, have this heart of gratitude of God's gracious gift to us. Because let's be honest, for the majority of us, majority of us, we wouldn't be here except for the grace of God. Demonstrated in Christ Jesus some 2,000 years ago in a manger. Number two, practical thing, set a budget. Set a budget. Don't spend all your money. Some of you, it's too late. You already did it. Black Friday. Broke. But set a budget. Don't go into January with your electricity turned off <laughs> and no water and not the ability to pay your rent. You know what I mean? Figure out what you can afford and spend only what you can afford to spend. Number three, release your expectations. Don't expect too much. Lower them. Lower them. Lighten up. Number four, keep it simple. We've already, we already started decorating our house and it's not simple. There's two waves of Christmas decorations in our house. It's the ones that the grandchildren help us put up. And then there's the remodel, the reboot. <laughs> you have to fix everything that they put. But you need to keep it simple. You know, I, when I think of the Christmas story, Jesus being born in a manger. It's a very simple story. A mom and a dad trying to find this place, have to pay their taxes, have to go to Bethlehem. There's not enough room for them. We make this story so complex. We make the season so complex with all the engagements, and don't get me wrong, we, the church, are creating some of those engagements. 
know that it can get overwhelming. And I encourage you to keep it simple. Number five, listen to music. BCL will help you. They already started their Christmas music. I switch between BCL and 95.1. When I want some less serious music, I go to the secular station because I want to hear some of that secular stuff. But I switch back and forth. And then I have my whole series of my own music that I listen to every year. When I play that CD, it reminds me, the season is here. I encourage you that some of you that are not into classical music, listen to some classical Christian Christmas music. Put on Handel's Messiah. Some of you that only like classical music, put on Mannheim Steamroller or the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Rock out a little bit. Stretch yourself. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Create traditions. When my kids were little, we used to get a book, and I strongly recommend it to you families who have little kids. It's called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. Seven chapters. If you start reading it seven days before Christmas, Christmas Eve, you'll read the last chapter, and I guarantee it'll put your kids in the sense and idea of Christmas. We handed those books to our kids when they got married and had their own families hoping that they would continue the tradition of reading the best Christmas pageant ever. And for those of that work with the youth or the children here at Harvester, you'll see a Harvester families in that book with the Herdmans. Entertain without expectations. Lighten up. Light candles. They smell so nice in a house when the candles are lit. Light candles, the scented ones. Buy gifts meaningly. Don't do any last-minute shopping. Don't go out on Christmas Eve with the crazies. You don't want to be there. Trust me. And then lastly, rediscover. Rediscover the true purpose of Christmas. And what we're going to do to help you rediscover the purpose of Christmas is that we're going to focus the next four weeks on the Advent wreath and its meaning. In front of us here, there's five candles, three purples, one pink. And I'm going to explain each candle. The white candle is the Christ candle. The Advent wreath was created as a, as a reminder, weekly reminder that Christmas is coming. And every Sunday you light another candle. And as the candles get more and more lit, it gets brighter and brighter, the idea that Christmas is right upon us. Usually they have evergreens around it. We have this candelabra here. You could go simple with just, uh, just a wreath with some candles around it. It, it. it doesn't have to be so elaborate. You know, we do think that's the harvester way. We do it elaborate. It's fine. It works. But it's to help us think about the true meaning of Christmas. And also we're providing, this is your cue, Chris. We're providing each household a 25-day devotional for Christmas. We're going to give you a tool, okay, a tool. It has a reading every day. The thing is, as soon as you get this, you have to start today because this is the first Sunday of Advent. And every day, it'll walk you through, and it's sort of keyed to the candles. It's sort of keyed. So what you're reading today will go along with what, we're, what I'll be speaking from the scriptures. 
and it'll help you get to the holidays. Now, some of you are techies, okay? Some of you are techies. You know, you use your, your, your version Bible on your laptop or on your tablet or your phone. Well, there is a very good Christmas Advent devotional there that's built around the songs of Christmas. That's what it's called, the songs of Christmas. If, if this isn't your, if, if you're a techie and you're not going to walk around with this book, then, and you use a tablet or your phone, your Bible, go to version, look up the songs of Christmas and use, that as a very good Christmas Advent devotional. But you got to do something. As we prepare our hearts for Christmas. So this week, we like the first candle. I like matches. I don't like these. And Tim Dykhouse was asking, do we have fire extinguishers around here? I don't plan to burn down the church on my first Sunday. I don't plan to. Okay, let's look at the scriptures. And before we hop into the word, let's just ask God to prepare our hearts. You know, Jesus had a saying, let him who has an ear, let him hear. I don't think he was talking about cartilage that comes out of the sides of our heads. He was talking about the fact that sometimes God speaks and we're not orientated to wanting to listen to what he says. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you let the words of my mouth, even the thoughts of my heart, Let them be acceptable in your sight. You're the true and holy and righteous judge. And I pray, Lord, that you will open up our ears, that we might behold wonderful truths, wonderful truths that come from your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. The first candle this week is the prophet's candle, the candle of hope, of promise. In the Bible, there are over 300 messianic prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. I'm not going to preach through all of them. Some of them are obscure. Some of them are wonderful. Some of them are, 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 are kind of a spin. You look at it and say, I never thought that that would be a way that's fulfilled. But there are over 300 of them that Jesus fulfilled. Now, let me tell you something. To be able to fulfill one prophecy would be something great. But to be able in your lifetime to fulfill over 300 of them is an act of God. And it is an affirmation of who Jesus really is. He's the only one qualified to be our Lord. He's the only one that fills the bill of what it means to be God in the flesh. Of those 300 prophecies, there's over 44 of them which were fulfilled in Christmas. Things like where he was supposed to be born. About what family he was going to have. I want you to think about that. Where and who your family is going to be. None of us had any control over where we were born, when we were born, and who our family is. God controls that, right? Some of you this week, you know, after Thanksgiving realize we have special family. You don't get to choose them. But God, at the appropriate time, sent his son to the exact place where he needed to be born, in the exact family, 
at the right time with the right historical events around him. 44 of those, more than 44. And this week, we want to look at the very first of those. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I define this as the worst day in human history. This is the worst day in human history. Do you get it? You know the story. Adam and Eve are placed in a garden, right? Everything in the garden, everything in their universe is perfect. It is good. God created it. It was good. It was perfect. And God places them in this garden and he gives them the minimal of responsibilities. Okay? They have work. They have a job. They have to cultivate and care for the garden. Adam has to name the animals. And there's no Ten Commandments at this point in human history. There's only one command. Okay, one command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, in that day you will die. That's the only command they have. I want you to think about it. When I go to Walmart and I'm in the fruit and vegetable section, there's a lot of fruit. I mean, there's a lot. You know what I mean? There's, there's an unbelievable number of apples and oranges and tan. Just think about the garden. If I ate one different fruit every day, how long would it take me to run out of options where the only thing I could eat from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That shows you how rebellious, how prone to wander Adam and Eve were. Satan tempts Eve. Eve takes the fruit, eats it, give it to her husband, and they all of a sudden, sin enters into the existence of humanity. And because of that act, all of us today are sinners by nature and by choice. They messed it up. Now, being honest, if I want to put a subtitle under Adam and Eve, if I was going to be honest with them, if I was in the garden and I was there, I would have done the exact same thing. I I believe I would have done the exact same thing even with the knowledge I have today because I'm a sinner, okay? I would look at all that stuff. You know, the first thing I say, I want to see what that tree looks like. I'd be right over there by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And sin enters in the world. Adam and Eve... Deceived by Satan, now sin enters the world. So Adam and Eve try to deal with their sin problem, okay? And they deal with it the same way we deal with it. In verse 7, they cover up because they discover they were naked. In verse 10, they avoid God. In verses 12 and 13, they start blaming each other. That, that, is, our, that is our option of dealing with sin. We, we cover up, avoid God, and blame others. 
So when you sin normally, your option to deal with it, if you don't confess it to God, is to cover it up. It's to, it's to, it's avoid God. It's to blame others. So God has to show up. And when God shows up in chapter three, he judges everyone for their rebellion. So then the Lord says in verse 14 to the serpent, because you have done this, done this meaning tempting Eve and Adam to sin, you are cursed more than all the other domestic and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. He says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he says to the woman, he says, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. You will desire to be controlled by your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, which I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life will be a struggle to scratch out a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of its grains, but by the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust and to dust you will return. There it is. I like how God deals with the problem of sin. He deals with everybody. He deals with the serpent. He deals with the woman. He deals with the man. And it sounds kind of bad. It's a bad day. But in the midst of this, God lays out a message of hope. He makes a promise. In the judgment, he makes a promise. Verse 15, it says, And I will put empty between the woman, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, Eve's descendants, will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. What is it saying here? It's saying in some future time, there's going to be a war, a battle. Now God is constantly saying things and Adam and Eve are saying things that I always believe are prophetic for the future. When Adam got married, God made him a wife and brought him to Adam, correct? And he said, wow, this is good. And he says, for this reason shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Time out here. Adam didn't have a mother or a father. God created him out of the dust. What is he talking about? He's talking about at some future event. When this marriage thing happens. You'll leave and cleave. In this new relationship. And God is prophetically talking about that in the future. Way down sometime future. There's going to be this war. 
this enmity between, between, between the serpent and the seed of Eve, there's going to be this battle. And what he's also saying is that the two sides are, it's, it's about generations. It's about seed. It's about family. The family of Adam and the descendants, the followers of Satan, they're going to be at war. And in this ensuing battle, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Though wounded in the struggle, the woman's seed will be victorious. God is already laying out how the story is going to end. Some of you read novels. You cheat. You read the last few pages. Yeah. Who's the last page of readers out there? All right. You see, you, you go right to the end. You don't stick with it. You want to see if it's worthwhile reading the rest of it? When I was a kid, teenager, I read through the whole Bible. And I wrote a, I wrote a commentary on the whole Bible after I read it as a 16-year-old. It was one sentence. God is extreme. Everything God does is over the top. Did you know that? He doesn't do anything little. Everything he does is big and awesome. But I never forget when I read the book of Revelation. I also wrote a commentary note on that book. In the commentary, you know, I was 16, so I was a, I was a, a big writer. It was God wins. I don't know how you read the Bible. And I don't care what your end time view is. But I can tell you this. God wins. That regardless of what the battle looks like now, how it's going out now, we know for a fact that the end of the story is secure. God wins. God wins. And we know that this God is telling Eve, that there's going to be this battle between your descendants and the workers of Satan. There's going to be this ongoing conflict. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to win. What that's saying is that the future defeat of Satan is secure. So much of what we do is dependent on us misunderstanding how the story unfolds. You know, I think, I think that, that, that we miss the deep meaning of Christmas because we've read the story too much. We know that there's no... I want you, I want you to, this year, as you read the story of Christmas, I want you to read it in the drama of not knowing how it's going to turn out. I want you to read it from people who didn't have the whole Bible in front of them to know how the story was going to unfold. I want you to, I want you to understand the stress, the tension that, that, that Joseph and Mary had when this angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a child and you've never had sex before and you're going to give birth to a son. And, and she's, and she's saying, wait a minute. I took health class. How is that possible? How is that possible? How is it that a virgin could have a baby? It doesn't work that way. And God says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. 
and overshadow you so that the child that is in you will be called the son of God. And then she has to communicate this crazy story to her fiancé, her betrothed one. And she comes up to Joseph and says, I'm pregnant. And he says, okay. And by the way, it's by the Holy Spirit. Sure. Because Joseph also took health class. And he says, this is not how it works. This is not how it goes down. Come on. He, I don't, he says, you know what? This story is so out there. You know what? Maybe the best I should do is just break up this betrothal arrangement. And, and you know what I mean? I'll do it quietly. And then in a dream, this angel of the Lord has to show it up to him and says, you know what? What she is saying is true. Do not be resistant to take Mary as your wife. And it says he woke up the next day and immediately, immediately. That's only part of the story. How would they have dealt with the public disgrace and the shame? Then they have to go to Bethlehem. You're going to have a child who is the son of God. But there's no place for him. A barn, a cave. And you have this child and it's born there and, 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 and shepherds come and angels show up. The glory of the Lord showing around. And that's why it says in the scriptures that Mary, Mary treasured all these things in her heart. How do you even make sense of that stuff? Yeah, we, we know the story. We know how it unfolds. And because we've read the last chapter, we miss the full drama of this season we call Advent. And so they live in Bethlehem for a while, and then they hear there's a plot to kill the baby. And wise men from the east come. Bearing gifts. And they're perplexed. Where do you go when you want to meet the king of the Jews? You go to the capital. But obviously, he's not there. So they have to ask, where is he? Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? And they find him and they find the child and they give the gifts and Herod, Herod wants to kill the baby. They go into Egypt. All of that is to show that there's this constant battle, empty between the seed of Satan and the seed of Mary. But I'm telling you right now, God wins. God wins wins. God, our God, our God keeps his promises. And the old song, every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. God keeps his promise. He made a promise in the darkest day in human history that he kept 
to the birth of Christ. Because we sometimes forget that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And a thousand years like a day. The Lord isn't being slow about his promises as some of us are. All of us have broken promises, right? We've broken promises. Oh, we said we would do this. And then once we got in the middle of it, we realized we couldn't do it. We would say we kept, we would keep these words and we couldn't keep these words. We are promise breakers. I went to the promise keepers rally. I think they'd have a bigger rally if they had promise breakers. <laughs> Oh, man, when I look at all the seven promises of a promise keeper, just break all of them, you know. Then we can have a big rally. We are all promise breakers. We don't keep our word. We don't follow through. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I am a knucklehead. I confess it. I get it. So when we look at promises, when we sometimes look at the promises of God, the words of hope that he gives us, we think that he's like us. And it's been a couple of thousand years and it looks like, oh, he's forgotten that promise. Well, that's not going to happen. And the Bible tells us constantly that God is not about promises the way we are. God's timeline is not our timeline. Therefore, if there seems to be a delay in the promises of God, there's a reason behind it. There's a reason behind it. And I believe that the reason behind the delay of the promises of God is he wants to give us time. You know, he wants to give us time to get on board. When I first decided to get married, I went and met with Belinda's mom and dad. They didn't speak a lot of English, hardly any. Old school Puerto Ricans. And I never forget it was Mother's Day. Mother's Day. And um, so I go and I sit in the living room with them, and I said, you know, I love your daughter, and I would like to get married. And I had worked out the whole script. You know, I had gone over it like 16 times in the mirror while I was driving there. And, and, and I, I, I had already preordained their response. You know what I mean? So I, so, so I had all, I had the whole dialogue. I said, so I'd like to marry your daughter. I love her. You know what I mean? And, and I, and I, my, I thought they were going to respond. Oh, we're so glad that you want to marry my daughter. And we're so glad you're here. And they said, no. <laughs> they said, no. Now I have to tell you, the ghetto Bob was about to jump out. Yo, like what you be talking about here? I'm a grown man. I do what I want to do. Pull my pants down low. Yeah. But I asked them, I said, why? They said, well, you know, you're just getting out of Bible school. 
You don't have any money. You don't have a job. And you don't have a place to live. <laughs> you know, when I look back now, duh. <laughs> and so I asked him, I said, how long do you think we should wait? They said, come back in a year. Come back in a year. But you know, that year of waiting helped me learn something about God. As you're waiting for the fulfillment of what is promised, you need to be about the work. I had a list of things I had to get together in a year. So there was a reason why I ate Campbell's soup every day for lunch. Because I had to bankroll some money so that with the next, when I went back in a year, I would have some money in the bank. And I secured a job. And I secured a place to stay. I was on fire working to fulfill my responsibilities in the time of waiting for the promise. And then a year to the day, a year to the day. Maybe it was one day because it was the next Mother's Day, but it was Mother's Day. I asked again. But this time, I had evidence. <laughs> I had a whopping $200 in the bank. Who I was rich. <laughs> and I had a job. And I had housing. You see, we look at God's promises as, as, if, as if it's just holding off and holding off. What do we do? What do we do? I, I ask God to do this and I ask God to do that. And I don't see it happening. In the midst of your waiting for the fulfillment of what God has promised, we must be about his work. We must work while it is day. We must be in the harvest. Yo, folks, it's in our name. It's who we are. We are harvest workers. That's what we're called to do. In Galatians, it says, but when the time was right, God sent his son, born of a woman, Subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his own children. Now, let me tell you something. I know there's a lot of people that have a lot of things to say about Harvester. I'm on the inside, okay? I know the problems. I know the things we as a congregation need to focus on. Reaching the lost. Building them up to a place of maturity. Training and equipping people to do the work. Expanding our influence beyond the walls of this facility. All of those things are things we have to be about. Winning the lost. 
building those who are one to a place that they can be mature, functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Equipping people to do the work that's ever growing here in our congregation and expanding our influence and input beyond the walls of the church. That is what we need to be about. And I know some people have said, oh man, harvest is going to die. Too many old folks. Too many commuters. But let me tell you something. God has made some promises about his church. He said he would build his church. He did not say Pastor Dave or Pastor Bob or the council that he would build his church. He is the general and contractor and owner of the facility of what happens in this place called the Church of Jesus Christ. He's building it through his spirit. And if I know the builder, the author of my faith, I am not discouraged one bit. Because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. He kept, he has kept his promises with Harvester. So what do we do? We gotta work. We have to step it up. Because in between the time when the fulfillment of the, the promise made and the fulfillment of the promise, we must be about the business of the master. Hey, I'm nothing more than a field hand. I am, when it comes to what the church ought to be doing, I'm not too complex. Win lost people. Those lost people who want to build them up, help them get to a place of maturity. Equip people to do the work. And multiply ourselves beyond the walls of this church. You know, I'm not too complex. But until all of those pieces seem to be fulfilled, which is basically the great command and the great commission, we, this body, need to be about doing the work of the ministry. And I'm not going to lie to you. I am going to be asking you to step up, to step in, to put your hand to the plow, to assist in this work. Because he's building his church. And our God is not slack about the promises he made. I was going to have up here an overhead projector. I don't plan to be here as long as Dr. West was here. <laughs> verily, verily, I said, not because I don't like Dr. West. I don't think I have those that many years. You know what I mean? Seriously, I do the math. But I'm going to tell you this. As long as I'm here, I will do what I can to help us as a body and as a family and as a community of committed people to Jesus to win lost people. To pray for their salvation. To pray for our expansion. 
to help people get deeper. To begin to deploy new people into ministry roles by equipping them. And to help us get beyond these walls to meet the multitude of people that have yet to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that calls them to commitment. And brothers and sisters, I need you. I cannot, I will not do this by myself. You know what I'm saying? I can't. I can't do it. I can't do it by myself. And I will not do it. So if you sense Pastor Bob pressing and pushing and asking and requesting, I'm all going to be all about that. Because I cannot do it by myself. The good news is that faithful is the one who called you. Faithful. He's faithful. He will also bring it to pass. Let's pray. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want you, I want you to talk to the Lord. You, just you. Just you and the Lord. I want you to ask him what you should be doing or what role you can play to help the expansion of the ministry of Harvester Missionary Church. We don't need fans and spectators. We need people in the field. Father in heaven, you have given us a command that the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. You told us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth harvest workers into his field. And that is our prayer. I thank you, Lord, that what you have promised for us as a church, what you have promised for us as believers, you keep your word. And so we can have hope for the future because of who you are. And we ask and we pray this in your name. Amen. Can I ask the worship team to come up?